You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, Episode 63, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Hey folks, Greg Otten here. This is part two of my wonderful conversation with Robert Pavlis, author of Garden Myths. Um, this part of the discussion, we uh, talk about uh, at length about tomatoes, different myths about growing them, uh, calcium, blossom end rot, pinching suckers, blight, stuff like that. We also talk, there uh, some notes on different mulches we've used, uh, wood chips in particular, and I'm sure there's some other things we toss around in the course of the conversation as well. So uh, have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. All right. So I think you were, you were going to talk about tomatoes. Well, tomatoes, yeah, tomatoes interesting. Um, lot, there's lots of myths about tomatoes, and people grow them different ways. Uh, one of the biggest problems that people have is blossom end rot. I don't know if it's the biggest problem, but it's it's the one that seems to come up all the time. So people freaks, have blossom. It freaks you out. It's like, oh my God, what's happened to my plant? Am I going to not get any tomatoes this year? Yeah, and it kind of illustrates how sometimes we don't know everything about science. Right. So about five years ago, uh, people thought it was a calcium deficiency in the plant that was causing blossom end rot. I've read that. And uh, so, but some scientists did some more work, and it it turns out it's actually a calcium deficiency in the fruit, not necessarily in the plant. In the fruit. In the fruit. And then they, someone did some work very recently, in the last year or so, and, and what they found was that blossom end rot is actually the cause of the calcium deficiency. Oh. So as a, as a tomato is forming, the blossom end rot happens first, and once it's there, the fruit doesn't pull enough calcium from the plant, and so there's a def- the deficiency. It's a lack of calcium. But the calcium isn't causing the problem. It, it's a result of the problem. Oh, it's like it's got a disease that uh, makes it uh, just loses almost like an anemia in a sense. It loses its ability to extract that from the source. There's plenty at the source. It just can't get it. So the, the, the thing that causes blossom end rot is irregular watering. Irregular watering. Irregular water, either either too much all at once, or a drought. So moving from you know a drought condition to a really wet condition to a drought condition, that's the kind of thing that causes blossom end rot. So the more even you do your watering, the more constant soil moisture you have, the less you'll have blossom end rot. Constant moisture levels, yeah, because I don't I don't tend to. Uh have too much of a problem with that and I use you know a good three inches of mulch on all my tomato gardens yeah. um, I, mean, multi- I have had it happen I'm not going to say it's never happened to me but it's, it's it, it seems to happen less when I'm uh, properly mulching things because that that does maintain moisture levels a little bit better yeah so uh, of course there's lots of myths to solve this problem and and the, one of the funniest ones is Epsom salts so Epsom salts, if you didn't know, solves virtually every problem in the garden. <laughs> I've read about, I, I, I've often, I've said, why on earth would I mix salt uh, with water and throw it all over my soil? Or why would I put salt? And I've also read about putting, you know, Tums in the, yeah. <laughs> jamming, a, jamming a Tums in, in the roots. Uh, but the Epsom salts always to me seem like, no, that can't be good. So, well, Epsom salts is uh, magnesium sulfate. Right. It tells you that right on the package. So if you have a calcium deficiency, why would adding magnesium do anything for you? 
right? The Epsom salts makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Is there anything now, in it that could potentially uh, enable the plant to take up calcium better? Or is no. It just, no. 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 <laughs> it's it's just internet garbage. Just internet garbage. That's what it is. Uh, so you you mentioned Tums. Well. Uh, if this is a calcium deficiency, and, and in fact, if, if your soil is low in calcium, uh, you can actually see blossom end rot as well. It's just that most soils are not deficient in calcium. It's a very rare condition. But let's say you don't have enough calcium and you want to increase the amount of calcium, then the Tums that you mentioned is recommended, right? You actually take a, a Tums and put it in the bottom of the hole of every plant. You, you plant. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, about a year ago, I, I was reading that, and I thought, okay, uh, let's figure out how much calcium that is. Okay. And so I compared, I, I basically went to see how much calcium that you would use in, uh, on tomatoes if you were a farmer, and how much would you add. And then I figured out how many tums you'd have to put in, and it works out to somewhere around 80 tums per plant. Per plant. To get enough calcium to make a difference, yeah. Well, I should tell the listeners, you 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 have a background in was it chemistry or biochemistry? Uh, both. Both. Yeah. And that's that's part of the reason why I like researching this stuff, and so I go and actually look it up and and calculate how much calcium is in a tums. And in fact, one one of my if you're if someone's interested, if you go to my Garden Mist blog and type in tums, you'll get a, a blog posting with all the calculations and show you exactly how I got the numbers. Eighty tums of plant seems. And I, I would imagine a soil would have to be pretty messed up to because I mean just every plant needs calcium to grow at, at you know at varying levels. It's 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 usually uh, and and there's a lot of. Uh, my understanding is that there's a good number of microorganisms, fungi, and stuff that that uh, capture it and make it bio. I mean, from what I've read, there's there's fungi that capture calcium, make it bioavailable for the plant roots. Um, yeah. So a healthy soil is gonna your soil has to be pretty messed up for it to be calcium deficient. Well, again, the places, I mean, there, I'm sure there's certain soils around, but the place yes. you usually find a deficiency like that is, is in a new subdivision that's built on a farm where they were growing crops that used a lot of calcium. And in agriculture, you do start getting these deficiencies because you're harvesting the same crop year after year after year. Oh, yeah, I can see that, yes. Um, and, you know, if you build a house on that area and the you know, the farmer knew he was going to sell the farm and hasn't been fertilizing properly, you, you might have a deficiency. I could see but that. But that's, that's a rare case. I yes. mean, most garden soils do not have calcium deficiencies. Right. right. They also don't have magnesium deficiencies, so Epsom salts really has no place in the garden. <laughs> um, I'm with you there. Just just, okay. just on gut just on uh, gut gut reaction, I was like, <laughs> what? It's... it's uh, that's for when you've got the candles and the, the flute music in your bathtub and you're trying <laughs> to unwind with a, a glass of champagne or something like that. <laughs> uh, all right, I think we've got time for one more. Uh, I think uh, we got one more uh, garden myth for us, Robert. Well, we can, we can continue talking about tomatoes if you like. Okay. So there, the age-old question is, do you sucker the tomatoes or don't sucker the tomatoes? Yeah, that's a good one. 
Why don't you explain what that means just for the listeners that don't know what that means. Okay, so a, a tomato will grow a main stem and then have a leaf coming off of the main stem. And where the two join, it will make a secondary stem, and we call that the sucker. Like an upside-down armpit arm hair, armpit hair. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could call it that. <laughs> it comes out of the armpit of the stem, but on the top. So the issue is that if you leave those, you, you in effect get more and more and more stems. right? And each one of those stems starts growing and making its own leaves and its own fruit. Yes. But you get a very congested plant because you've got lots of stems. Yes. So some people feel that uh, you should take all the suckers off and have a single stem. Other people say it's better if you have the more leaves you have, the more fruit you will make. And there's a great debate about which one of these you actually do. I've also read that it's, you know, it depends on whether it's determinate or indeterminate. Uh, yeah, well, the, when we're suckering, you usually have an indeterminate uh, right. plant that's, that's going to keep growing, right? That's, that's usually where the problem is. Okay. Uh, well, it turns out both sides are right. Okay. <laughs> Neither side is wrong this time. Um, but it kind of depends on what your priority is. So if you don't sucker, you get lots of leaves, you get a really big plant, you get lots of fruit but the fruit's smaller. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, the plant that is, is suckered and, and you take to a single stem um, has less fruit because it makes less flowers, but the fruit is bigger. Almost like that trick for growing giant pumpkins. Yeah. And I think, it, if I remember correctly, it also ripens a bit earlier. I see. Okay. Uh, the other issue is disease. The plant that has lots of leaves has less air going through and has a higher probability of fungal disease. Oh, that's a point in the, on the side of the, the suckering uh, so it's Yeah, it sort of depends on where you, where you live, right? Um, we live up north. Our seasons are short, so getting tomatoes a little sooner is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have problems with fungal problems, right? Um, so we want to reduce the amount of fungal problems, so a single stem is better. Um, and for a home gardener, you usually not worry too much about yield, right? You, you either get tomatoes or you don't get tomatoes, and if you do get them, you probably have too many anyway. So, <laughs> That's so right, yeah. It's not like a farm operation where you have an acre of tomatoes and you want to maximize your yield, Right. You want 100 bushels, or you know, if you can increase the number of bushels by 5%, it's, it's, it's a, you know, 5% of a ton is a lot. Yeah. So for a home gardener, uh, particularly up north, um, you're probably best off to sucker and keep it to a single stem. Or you can kind of do a hybrid. So you can take that tomato and, and leave the first couple suckers and, say, go to three stems, but after that, sucker everything. Right. Right. Um, but what a lot of people in, in around here and in colder climates do, they go to a single stem and that seems to work the best. Uh, in, warmer, yeah, in warmer climates, you, you can just put a big cage around them and let them grow. And 
um, it, it's not a problem. If you're in an area where disease isn't a particular problem, it's a drier location, then you, you can, you know, let them grow. The disease isn't an issue then. Uh, so in that case, both sides are really kind of right. So both sides have been arguing for 100 years which is best, and it turns out they're both right. We tend to have uh, here, it's, it's in the summer especially, there is a fog like especially if you're coastal like me, there is a fog every morning. It was, it literally looks like there's a forest fire, but it's actually fog. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very moist here, and uh, tomato blight is a, a real problem with a, a lot of people have a problem with it. Um, so maybe suckering would help. I mean, I, I came at it the other way this year. Bessie Seeds uh, sponsored me, and they gave me all my stuff for free. So they got these super awesome designer seeds that are supposed to be blight resistant. So I thought, hey. Why don't I give those a whirl? Um, mm. So I tried a couple of varieties of tomato. That's I, mean, I mean I know there's blight here. It's it doesn't matter where I put tomatoes if I'm not extraordinarily vigilant about. Uh, and this might be a myth. I don't know. I, what I've read is that um, you know to avoid blight, you uh, don't let any of your stems touch the ground. Uh, you use a mulch, and any stem that's touching the ground, break just remove that stem right away. And any any uh, if any leaf on any stem looks like it's starting to uh, turn black or whatever you just remove that whole stem and so I I do that it seems to when I'm vigilant with that it seems to hold it in check um, and also planting the, the tomatoes uh, giving everything lots of space and room and that sort of thing and not watering them at night and, and some things like that um, mm -hmm. do you have issues with blight where you are well, we, first of all, there's, there's two kinds of blight, right? There's an early blight and a, a late blight. That's right. Um, and we, we've always had a, a bit of late blight, but it doesn't really affect the crop too much. You usually harvest most of your tomatoes. Um, right. The early, yes. blight, the early blight is, is the deadly one, and your, your tomato plants are gone within about a week to 10 days. Right. And it affects the fruit. Yes. Uh, so once that starts, it, it, the season's pretty much over for tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. And the this early blight really wasn't around here. Well, it, it, it's been around forever, but um, it really didn't affect tomato plants too much. And then about seven years ago, some uh, manu or producer shipped millions of tomato seedlings from somewhere down south up into the New York area, and then they were distributed all across the Northeast uh, coast. And uh, that was the summer that almost everyone got early blight. Oh, no. And uh, it took about three years for it to sell down a little bit. And uh, I had I haven't had it for a couple years, and then last year I had it again. Uh, not on every variety, but on a couple plants. Um, so it, it is important that people, you know, go to Google the difference between the two because you can tell by looking at it um, which one you have. Um, and um, you can, uh, there isn't really much you can do about it other than what, what you suggested about keeping things off the ground makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but not for early blight, I think. Early blight travels like 50 miles. And it's airborne. If it hits you, you're doomed. It doesn't overwinter in soil either. Oh, that's good. Uh, so some fungal diseases overwinter in soil. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want any soil splashing up onto your plants. 
And so a mulch helps and removing the bottom leaves helps. Um, other types of fungus are not living in the soil over the winter, at least not in our climates. Right. Um, but if, but uh, it's, uh, with the early blight, I guess if it's just a good warm breeze blows into town that's full of the spores or whatever, everybody's doomed? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty sad. Um, interesting that you have a cultivar that uh, is resistant. A couple have come on the market. Yeah. Uh, but most are not resistant. Yes. And of course, all of the heirlooms are not resistant. Yes. Um, so I think going forwards, we probably will find more and more of the hybrids will have that uh, resistance built in. That's the problem with these. I mean, I'm grateful to uh, Vesicis for providing them. Um, they are uh, they're not cheap. I'm trying to see the price here. Uh, I mean, they just developed them. That's why the price is so high. Uh, on the other end of it, you know, and the way I, I would look at it if I was to buy these is if if you were into July and all your tomatoes died, you'd wish you'd spend another five bucks on seeds <laughs> and gotten it. You know, at that, at that point, you'll, you'd wish that you had. Um, but they're, they're a small tomato, I'm guessing, right? Or are they a full-size tomato? The three varieties were uh, Mountain Magic, which is a cherry tomato, uh, Defiant, which is a beefsteak tomato, and Plum Regal, which is a plum, a paste uh, tomato. And they range in price from about uh, six to eight bucks. I think Plum Regal was the cheaper of the three, uh, around six dollars for 15. The other two were something like seven or eight bucks for 10 seeds. I, I could not figure out what those prices were to figure that any of that out on the fly while I was talking to Robert. So this is just me interjecting after the fact as I'm editing the recording. I'm really curious to see what they taste like. I, I'm hoping that the flavor wasn't uh, sacrificed for uh, blight resistance. Uh, I don't know if they develop these for uh, agricultural. I mean, they, they provide the full range from from home gardeners all the way up to you know, major operations. Um, I can I can see that a variety like that being attractive to a not certainly not at that price, but being attractive to a producer if they would be uh, <coughs> have the assurance that the uh, the plant was going to make it and they weren't going to lose everything. Uh, I can see that being you know attractive. It's now a little over a week since I made that recording and I'm editing down the second part and. All of those tomatoes are dead. <laughs> we had an insane frost here. I made a couple of videos about it. You can check that out on my uh, YouTube channel. Uh, even though they were covered in under plastic, and uh, and I've done this many years, uh, started them early and had them covered, we had a very, very intense June frost. Very cold. Froze my hose. And, uh, and they all died. So I'll never know what those... I'll have to wait till next year to try that out. This year, it was complete... I lost all my tomatoes. Had to buy transplants. You wanted to talk about uh, wood chips, using wood chips as a mulch. Wood and chips. Your, and your experience with mulches. Yeah. Um, curious to hear about that. So one of the myths that have been going around for a long time is that wood chips rob the soil of nitrogen. Yes. So the, the guy I get my wood chips from every year, an arborist comes and dumps them. Yeah. Every year he says... Uh, you know, these take the nitrogen out of your soil. And I say, you know, I've got like a YouTube channel where I have this awesome garden that I show people all the time. <laughs> but every year he tells me that, oh, these are going to take all, you know, anyway, so continue. 
Well, it, the story is is sort of true. Um, so wood chips, there's a very high amount of carbon and very little nitrogen. That's right. So to decompose wood chips, it needs more nitrogen. I mean, the bacteria are going to do this, but the bacteria need nitrogen to decompose wood. That's right. And so they take it from the soil. But bacteria are so small you can't see them. Mm -hmm. And they don't have little arms that go way down into the soil to pull up the nitrogen. So what we find is that the top layer of soil, uh, you know, the half inch, maybe a quarter inch or something, is actually a little deficient in nitrogen. But lower down where the roots are of plants, it's not deficient. So as long as you're using the, the wood chips as a mulch and it lays on top of the soil, it shouldn't cause a problem in a vegetable garden. That's exactly my experience. If you don't till them in and... Yeah. Uh, also, I found when you're when you're direct seeding in a in a, in a bed that you've uh, had wood chips down. I mean, you brush you brush the wood chips uh, wood chips aside, but uh, I have found in in like let's say you got a garden that had wood chips on it all winter, and I brush them aside and direct seed. Um, I have had very very mixed results in uh, the seedlings. Uh, whereas if I if I do that same thing, brush the wood chips aside and and sow. And I put some fresh compost down, like let's say half an inch, almost like exactly what you're saying. You you move, you know, push aside the the first half inch of soil and put some unaffected um, uh, compost down or, or fresh soil from from another source. Um, yeah. You know, about three inches. Make a little row about three inches wide. Then it, the difference is huge. And then you can move the mulch back once the plants are high enough and the roots are down below that uh, inch level where uh, the soil is just perfectly fine. And, and that's, that's exactly the problem with wood chips in a vegetable garden is, is a vegetable garden, things are, you know, even if you're not rototilling, you're, you're still moving the soil around and you're harvesting. And when you pull a carrot out, it kind of mixes in. And it's kind of hard to keep the wood chips only as a mulch, right? It slowly goes in. And so seedlings can have a problem. Um, and the solution you have works perfectly fine because you're just giving them a place where there's a little more nitrogen. The seedlings grow fine. And then once the seedling gets big enough, its roots go deeper where it isn't a problem. That's so right. wood chips work in a, in a vegetable garden, but it's, it's probably not the best option, I think. I, I really like straw. I'm with and you there. It lasts a long time. It decomposes slowly. Uh, it just seems to be easy to work with. Uh, it doesn't get mixed into the soil the way wood chips do. It, it tends to sit on the top. Um, I use wood chips because that's what I have, and, and for some reason I can't find an easy source to get uh, the, the straw. I had a place a couple years ago, and I was using it, and then it became difficult to get. So I thought, well, I got a pile of wood chips here anyways. I might as well use them. Um, so I, they, they both will work, but you have to understand that this nitrogen is a bit of a problem for seedlings. Yeah, I find that I have a, th I have a theory that the, um, I have a theory that the wood chips, uh, make a better mulch in, uh, warmer climates where they have a longer growing season because they have more time to break down. Mm -hmm. um, I think that they, they. They break down here, but they break down, you know, for maybe four months a year or something like that, or maybe six months a year tops, and then everything's cold and that just stops. Um, so whereas if you put hay on a garden, uh, you put 
four or five inches of hay down on the soil, it's basically gone by the fall. So all of that has been used up by the organisms in the soil and been distributed into the soil. So I think uh, hay uh, feeds the soil at a much greater, you know, it feeds the soil at a much greater rate. And I think it gives the soil more. I mean, you, you have to keep bringing it in every year and so on. But if you, I, I'm lucky there's a horse stable just down the road. And I, I mean, I'm not using straw. I'm using uh, spoiled hay. So it's full of seeds and stuff like that. But I, it's really not as bad as a lot of people think. I find it... Uh, it's not as weedy as as you might. I mean, it's, it's weird because you're putting the hay down and there's seeds everywhere in the hay. <laughs> but it's still, the germination rate of those seeds is poor. They still germinate, and every once in a while, like, you'll get a ridiculous amount. But um, I still don't find it to be that big a deal. Hmm. Yeah, as long as you keep the layer thick enough, then the seeds have a hard time germinating. That's right. And I, don't, I wonder if it's just not warm enough for them. I mean, they have very specific conditions they need. Um, well, they want to get light they, to start growing, and uh, they, if, if they germinate at the soil level, and you know they're not going to get very tall before they they run out of food. So I think it's just dark down there, and they don't grow well. I heard a YouTube guy once. Uh, I can't remember. Wish I could give the guy credit. I can't remember who it was now. Um, he was making the argument that uh, straw uh, hay is actually better than straw. From a nutrient point of view, because it, because it has seeds, um, uh, you know, seeds have more uh, energy in them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So the argument this guy was making was that uh, you know while the straw has less seeds and it's not going to be as much of a weed problem, the the hay is what the horses eat because it actually has more nutrients in it, and because it's got more nutrients, it's giving uh, the soil soil organisms more nutrients per weight. Um, so you should get more you know, soil organism poop in your soil, <laughs> yeah. which will, you know, like worm casting, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I don't know. I certainly notice more intense worm activity in the hay mulch. I mean, I, I do experiments where I have like seaweed, uh, hay, and wood chips because I can, I can get all three. And uh, some really... Um, active worm activity in the hay probably more than anything else hmm. the worms seem to like the seaweed uh, but the seaweed doesn't uh, it doesn't retain moisture in the soil I think the seaweed has a lot of nutrients in it I think it seems to do the soil a lot of good um, I know you can't get seaweed uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to keep the sun it dries out and the, the, the sun the light can get through it a bit better it's, you tend to get more weeds with seaweed and uh, and uh, it doesn't seem to keep the soil as moist. It doesn't ma maintain constant moisture levels quite as well as as hay. I mean, for me, hay is uh, uh, probably the probably the winner, at least in my experience. Although I, I also have I found like the first year I, I mulched a garden, I started off with just bare soil, let it always done, and my plants were a good height. And that year I put wood chips everywhere, and I had an amazing garden. And then the very next year, I had a terrible garden. <laughs> and I didn't tell her anything like that, but the next year also was like the, the, one of the worst years in the history of Nova Scotia. Um, there, the lake behind my house, which I can usually canoe on in the end of March, uh, there was a four feet of ice on that lake on May 1st. Um, so, I mean, there was still uh, ice and snow, and the, the ground took forever to thaw. It was just a terrible growing season as, as well. 
Um, so I'm not quite sure if you know which which variable it was. Um, but, uh, and that was also the year I hadn't figured out that you, it's useful to add a little bit of you know good soil when you're when you're sowing if you're just brushing wood chips back because they do seem to take a they take a little bit out of the top as you say. Yeah. Yeah. The, your your example of uh, you know you did something one year and then the next year you did something different and and uh, this is what a lot of gardeners use as evidence to support an idea mm -hmm. and do you, hear, you see it all the time oh I did so and so and it worked yes. well you, you really can't compare one year to the other because That's one trial and then and and all kinds of things. So until you do controls and you do lots of plants and you have two rows exactly the same and the same season and so on, um, you, you really can't reach conclusions. Uh, unfortunately, the general public doesn't really understand that. And so they, they, they create a whole bunch of myths uh, just because, you know, they, they, one year they had bugs and now they spray with something and they don't have bugs. So What's the, the classic uh, logical fallacy that... Was yeah. it post post hoc proper hoc? Uh, you know, the, you know, thing A happened and then thing B happened. So thing A is the cause of thing B. Yeah. Um, like I, I'll often hear people say, uh, uh, "I can't grow peas because the birds eat them." And I'm like, "What birds are eating?" Uh, at least in this part of the world. I mean, if there's if there's birds near your peas, they're probably eating the snails that are killing your peas. <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, or, you know, or they're just eating worms that are around. You know, uh, but I, and birds, you know, especially. I mean, it's usually like little sparrows and stuff. They're not vegetarians. I mean, <laughs> they eat seeds and they eat uh, bugs. You know, they don't eat green, leafy green. They're not herbivores. Um, so, but you know, it's the same thing. Well, I saw this, so that's the thing. I saw this, and they died, so that was the thing. Uh, yeah. So I agree with. And also, I think the gardeners. Uh, they're, they're, they're extraordinarily risk averse. So uh, they're, perpetually, uh, they're, they're perpetually committing what they call type one error, right? Where it, it, they, make, they think something's a cause and it isn't and they avoid that thing. And it may or may not be giving them the good results. It, there could be a thousand reasons why X led to Y, um, but they'll just keep going thinking that the, the thing that has no effect is actually having an effect. So all the more reason to have a good read of gardening myths. That's right. And, uh, you know, I'm really interested to get people's comments on this uh, episode. And also, if uh, Robert, like myself, although I'm, I'm imagine, given that he's got a six-acre garden, it's on a much uh, broader scale, has a, a natural fish pond in his backyard. And I, I also have a, a natural fish pond in my backyard, although I doubt it's as nice as his. Um, so... If you're interested in hearing how to, you know, dig a hole and get fish going in there without all the other stuff, you know, the pump and the water, you don't have a, a pump or anything like that in yours, right? No, mine's completely natural. Yes. No pump, no filter, no chemicals. Okay, so audience, if, if you want to hear about how to make that happen, uh, let me know. And if I get enough uh, feedback on that, we'll have Robert back to, to talk about that. I, I would love to talk about it. I think that's a, you know, I, I developed mine through trial and error. I'm interested to to hear uh, the uh, insights of a, of a person who actually wrote a book on it. Uh, and anyone that's interested in doing that, I don't find there's a lot of in, uh, information if you try to find YouTube videos. When I when I started mine, I, I scoured the internet and I really couldn't get, uh, most of it was just ads for air pumps and 
you know, waterfalls and things like that. I couldn't really get any good information on how to just uh, get it going in a natural way. So uh, if you're interested, let us know. All right, so Robert, I think we've had a, I think this is the longest podcast I've done in quite a while, but uh, it was a great conversation, uh, and I hope we can have you uh, back again sometime to do it again. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you, and i uh, love to come back. Great, great. All right, everyone, well, that's another episode of Maritime Gardening Podcast. Uh, I hope you uh, got some good ideas and some uh, great insights from Robert Pavlis. Uh, if you're interested, check out his book. And um, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>